Let's just bow our hearts just one more time as we turn to, to God's word now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. Father, we thank you that your word changes us. Lord, it changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see the world. Lord, we're so conditioned to look at things from a worldly perspective using our natural mind. But Father, your word tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them. The Lord, the the real things, the true things are spiritually discerned. And so, Lord, we pray now for your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, to open our eyes spiritually, to see these wonderful truths, Lord, to inspire us, encourage us, Lord, edify us and equip us, Lord, for the work of ministry that you've called us to. Lord, help us not to have hard hearts, but Lord, just soften the the ground of our heart, we pray. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, just do a a wonderful work in us that you would be lifted high and glorified through these things. We commit you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Ruth, what an incredible book. It's considered by many as uh, one of the most beautiful accounts in Scripture. And the events, as we'll see as we go through in a moment, took place during the the times of the judges. We've been looking at judges last week and at Bible study on Thursday. And it was a a time of national spiritual chaos, really. Uh, It was darkness everywhere, spiritually. Uh, We're told in Judges 21, 25, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. But it's against that background that the book of Ruth stands out. A bit like a kind of a diamond on a black cloth. Um, Just this beautiful contrast Uh, It's kind of a beautiful day in the midst of a season of storms. Something we're very familiar with in this country, obviously. Well, not the beautiful days, but the seasons of storms. But the book is far more than just a book or story of love and commitment. Of course, it is that. But we'll discover that the key theme to this book is redemption. One of the dictionary definitions of redemption is to recover possession or ownership by payment of a price or service to regain. That's what redemption is. To purchase back again. So, as we look at the, the books of the Bible, so in the books of the Old Testament, uh, we've gone through the Torah, the first five books, uh, and now we're into this kind of historical grouping. There's 12 books that make up this, uh, this block here, where Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, obviously, a very kind of close time frame we're looking at, covering somewhere in the region of about 480 years uh, of history uh, for the Jewish nation at this point. Now, on the surface, we're going to see the account of Naomi, uh, this lady, uh, and her loss, and then the subsequent regaining of that, this redemption of that which was lost. Uh, We're going to see redemption of the land. Uh, Her land, it had been sold, and then we're going to see um, the redemption and purchasing of Ruth uh, by a kinsman redeemer, this this phrase that we'll look at, um, this individual by the name of Boaz. But the book has another level. In fact, it has a number of other levels. Hosea 12.10, God says there, I've spoken by the prophets, I've multiplied visions, I've used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Similitudes, simply a type or a model. A model simply as a representation of something, so it will give us insight or instruction. So typically we will build a model uh, of a building before we go ahead and build that building, so we can understand what it's going to be like. Well, the book of Ruth is replete with these models, um, possibly more so than, uh, than any other book, certainly given the number of verses uh, that we have here. We find the book opens and we're told it's in the days that the judges ruled. Um, just picking some quotes from Chuck Miller's commentary, he highlights that it is really the ultimate love story both at a literary level, and it's something that, that from a worldly perspective it's recognised as being a wonderful literary work in and of itself, but also at the prophetic and personal level it speaks of this incredible love of this kinsman redeemer. It's also one of the most significant books for the church for a number of reasons. Firstly, it reveals to us the role of the kinsman redeemer, and we'll unpack that and explain as we go through this study this morning. But, uh, and Chuck Misner makes this point, that it's essential as a prerequisite to understanding the book of Revelation. And particularly chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. If we understand the events and the, the, the situations that are occurring here, when we get to the book of Revelation, so many of the details there make a lot more sense. And of course this is the way scripture is. You can't necessarily just read one particular portion and understand it in all of its depth. Everything is interlinked, incredibly so. It is, of course, a book of history. It's a real account of something that actually took place. 
It's also the book of devotion. It's a book of prophecy also. And it's breathtaking in its typology by design. And we see that God has interworked into these few verses that we've got here. Just incredible design. You may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's work, um, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and so on. What C.S. Lewis has done there is taken the fact of the redemption of what Christ accomplished and he's worked that into a story, but he's on the other side of the time divide. He's looking back at the cross, what Christ accomplished. And he's given us these stories that depict some of the, the ideas and themes that we find from Scripture. So Lewis wrote of redemption after the event. But in the book of Ruth, we find that it's done 1,300 years before the event, before Jesus was crucified. All of these things are laid down. And that just makes this book staggering. When the world challenges and questions us about why do you believe the Bible, point them to this book. And as we'll see, there are so many wonderful things here. Just 85 verses to, to make up this entire book. And yet the word redeem, redeemer or kinsman, that will occur over 20 times uh, in those 85 verses. The author, well, most presume it's to be Samuel, uh, and in preparation for the kingdom. Uh, we'll see at the end in chapter 4 uh, how there we have the, the genealogy working the way down to David, uh, presenting David as the legitimate king of the nation. The timing of the book, well... We know it's when the judges ruled, but that was a long time frame. Um, We'll comment about that in just a moment. The position of the book is also very interesting, though. It's the eighth book of the Bible. Eighth typically speaks of new beginnings. The eighth note is the uh, first note of a new octave, and, and the eighth day typically the first day of a new week, and so on. So eight always has this idea of new beginnings through Scripture. But there's also a prophetic model that I think we see even just in the placement of the book in Scripture itself. If we look at a kind of panorama, uh, certainly the books of the, the Bible, the ones we've been looking at so far, we've got the law that's given. And of course Israel in the Old Testament had this time where they were under the law. Then they, they find themselves in the land walking and so on. And very much speaks of Israel's uh, journey in and life within the land. But then we get to the time of the judges and we find that this is when the Jews become subject to the Gentiles. And of course we know from scripture that the Jews are currently in what the Bible refers to as the times of the Gentiles, where it's man's rule, everyone doing what seems right in their own eyes. That speaks of the days that we live in, in the sense of the New Testament era. But incredibly, it is during this time that the kinsman redeemer comes and purchases and takes his bride. During this time when the world is in a free-for-all, kind of a downward spiral, doing what it seems right, the next step when we get to First Samuel, the next book, we get to the kingdom age, where God's rightful king is seated on the throne of David. So even just in the position of the book, there's these wonderful types and shadows that we see echoing through history. So let's jump straight into chapter 1 then. And we read, Now it came to pass when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now we spent... I think about six or seven weeks going through this book. We're going to try to summarize it now in just four hours. No, I'm kidding. Just, you know. just a short while, we're going to try to summarize this. Famines always bring us to a point of decision. There's a great example we find in the New Testament in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. He's gone off, he's taken all his inheritance and wealth now, and he's spending his money on all his uh, riotous living, doing whatever he wanted to do, and he suddenly comes to this place where he's hungry, where he's empty. And that brings him to this point of decision in his life. It's funny how famines do that. But whether it be a famine of food or another type of famine in our lives, God often allows us to come to these points. Chuck Misler makes a comment. He says, we can't conceive of a holy God wanting anything less than his very best for his children. And the very best he can give us is a holy character. And there are some times that in order to achieve that objective that God will allow us to go through times of hunger go through times where there's an emptiness in our lives. And this is why God will allow these famines, in order that just as with the prodigal son, we might turn around and seek our father. We are living, of course, today in the days of another famine, right now. And this course is forcing many in just the same way to a point of decision. Amos 8.11 reminds us there. It says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing 
the words of the Lord. God says this is going to happen. And when you look around the world, isn't that exactly what we see going on? Within the church in this country, how neglected is God's word? It is a judgment from God. Man has sought to follow their own wisdom. The church has abandoned the word of God. And there is now a a famine. See, he's taking away the bread of life from all but those who diligently seek him. You know, you can't play games with God. So then we're told, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Why Moab? Well, my belief is, and I'll let you go to scripture and uh, study this for yourself, but this is all to do with the timing of where this book actually occurs. We're going to find that Boaz, who in a sense becomes the hero of the book, his mum was Rahab. Rahab of Jericho, the lady in Jericho that dangled that scarlet thread out the window that Joshua went and allowed her and uh, those within her house to survive. Rahab has a baby boy, and that baby boy is Boaz. So we know that the timing of the book is not long after this event. So it places the events around Judges three, Judges chapter 3 and chapter 4, purely from that fact alone. And of course it's during this time that Israel were being oppressed by Moab. Again, they'd walked away from God, they were doing what seemed right in their own eyes, and God allows his judgment to come. We find that God raises up this judge, a man called Ehud, and he kills the king of Moab, goes into his chamber, gets everybody else to leave, and he stabs him in the rib and... This is a rather large gentleman, has quite a high body mass index uh, by today's vernacular, and um, would be clinically obese, I'm sure our doctors would say today. And uh, the, the dagger goes in and the fat closes up around it and Ehud can't get his dagger back, not that he's that bothered, I presume. And so he ends up fleeing. And as a result of this, he goes back and then Israel rallies his armies together with Ehud leading them. And they go and they conquer Moab and subdue Moab. And we find... That Israel then has peace with Moab, or Moab is under the, the thumb of Israel in a sense for 80 years. And I think the book of Ruth sits during this period. I think it's during that period that Elimelech, as this famine arrives in Israel, in Bethlehem, Judah, in the town where they live, Moab's, uh, uh, Elimelech is thinking, well, what should I do? Why should I take my family? Where else? Where else would you take them? But somewhere that you knew would be safe. And I think that's exactly what he does. Bethlehem Judah is in this region here, just the other side on the uh, west side of the, the uh, Dead Sea. So that have typically come just round the top here, probably crossing about Gilgal, which is where the children of Israel crossed over into the Promised Land, over the Jordan, and then coming down this area here through Israeli territory. Again, this, this becomes the tribe of Reuben. This is the land allotted to them. And then coming down here into the land of Moab down the bottom here. It's interesting, though, because if we look at this, there's a lesson that we need to learn, and that is that don't let the blessings become a curse. You see, Elimelech had experienced a great victory. Israel had experienced a great victory. I believe Elimelech would have been one of that group of soldiers that would have gone in and fought for their nation and, and brought this victory over Moab. And so Moab, of course, there becomes a picture of success and prosperity to him. And hence it becomes the place that I believe he chooses to go at this time, taking his family there. And isn't it then ironic that the blessings that God has given become the very thing that drive him and his family away from their God? And there's a very real lesson, because how often do we see that? How often have we enjoyed blessings from God's hand, only to let them become the thing that drives a wedge between us and God? Maybe you've prayed that God would give you a new job, but when you get it, you find that you're now a bit too risy to read the Bible or pray or go to church. Maybe... As I've seen a number of times, you know, you've prayed for, for children. The Lord has blessed you with children. And then suddenly, oh, I can't come to church. We've got to have family time. You know, and the blessing that God gives becomes the very thing that then pulls you away from God. It's a very real lesson we can learn from this. Verse 2 tells us, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name is his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Marlon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. 
by the way, uh, Ephrathites, is, uh, this area, again, was that area of the, where the soldiers came from that went into Moab. Uh, this other connection we see. The names are interesting. Elimelech means God is my king. That's, the, that's how the name uh, pans out, if we were to translate that into English. Naomi, her name means pleasure or pleasant. Marlon means unhealthy. Imagine naming your child unhealthy. Chilion means puny or pining. <laughs> Again, lovely name for your children, really. Uh, Bethlehem, um, the house of bread. Bet uh, being for, for the house, uh, and Bethlehem, the house of bread. Judah, meaning praise. So Bethlehem, Judah, is the house of bread and praise. And of course, that should be our dwelling. That's where we should be. It's kind of a picture of us all in a sense. You know, when we experience drought in our lives because we're not where God would have us, and of course that's what have brought the drought, you know, often we run to Moab in search of food. And just like we're going to see with Elimelech, he dies in Moab, and of course the same would happen to us if we leave that place that God has for us. Again, doing what seemed right in his own eyes. And we're told that Moab was God's wash pot. Psalm 60, uh, verse 8, Psalm 108, we're told, Moab is my washpot. Over Eden will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. You know, incredible, isn't it? That we experience drought and we end up running to a place that's not anywhere near the kind of blessings that we would have in God. Verse 3, we read, And Limelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. And they took the wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Marlon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Elimelech. Just want to read a couple of quotes here from Ray Steadman. He says, In that one name, the whole doctrine of man may be comprehended. This book begins with God, just as the Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible never argues the existence of God. The God of the Bible is the God who is, the God who exists. From beginning to end, you'll never find any apologetic dissertations on whether or not God exists. The Bible starts with the fact of God. The existence of God is a matter that rests wholly upon the innate revelation given to the human heart. Man either admits that God exists or he denies that God exists, one or the other. He is built to recognize the existence of God. There is no hope for him if he doesn't, because as Hebrews 11 tells us, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is, or that he exists. God is, and it isn't difficult to believe that God is. Light from God is streaming to us from all around. It is more difficult to believe that God isn't. Only those who are educated beyond their intelligence finally talk themselves into believing that there is no God. The whole story of man begins with the great fact that God is. And so we read the name, Elimelech, God is my king. God is my king. And he says, in the beginning, the man that God had created had a personal relationship with the God who made him. And that is what God intended for all of Adam's descendants. This will one day be achieved for all who accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So first of all, God is. But then God is my king. Revelation 21.3, we read there, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. As a result of this personal relationship, God is my king. Man had dominion of all that God had made. However, this was only the case so long as God is my king. God is my king. As long as God is king, we're in that position of authority. But when we come out from under the authority of God being our king, and we want to become our own king, we suddenly lose the right to have that dominion. As Ray Stedman puts it, man was given dominion over all the universe that God had made, but only as he himself was subject to the dominion of the God who made him. You know, you may have the top executive of some multinational company, And in their work environment, when they are under the authority of their company, acting on behalf of their company, they have power. 
But when they're in a queue at Tesco's, they have no more power than you or I. You see, that authority is only within the realm that it exists. And for us, if God is our king, then we have that position. Man had that position so long as God was king. And so it was with Adam that when he came out from under the authority of God, God ceased being his king. And Adam forfeited his right to have dominion over the earth. And as a result, the title of the earth passed to Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Luke 4, 5 and 6 confirm that fact. Let's move on. So then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices or their voice and wept. There's a sad parting here. They've been together for this time. Clearly a very strong family bond. But Naomi's saying, look, what's the point of returning with me? I, I haven't got anything. Go home, make a life for yourself. And they said to her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, in other words, I could bear children. If I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons... Would you wait for them? Would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? You know, would you wait and have no other husbands, no other relationships, waiting for these children to grow? Of course you wouldn't, my daughter, she says. For it grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's interesting, isn't it, how we blame God for the things that we bring upon ourselves. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her and she said behold thy sister-in-law has gone back so Orpha's turned back now to her life he says that your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people unto her gods return thou after thy sister-in-law and Ruth said entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee for whither thou goest I will go and where thou lodge I will lodge thy people shall be my people and thy God my God, where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So finally, Naomi gives in and says, Okay, Ruth, come with me, come back. It's interesting what we read here, though, of Ruth and the things that she says. Notice this strange comment in a sense, not just that your God will be my God, but I want to die where you're going to die. I want to be buried there. I mean, it's a strange thing, in a sense, to put into this conversation, if you don't understand the context. Well, the Israelite believed that someday he would be raised from the dead to live in that land. Numerous echoes of that through the Old Testament with the Jews we see. That was the hope of Abraham. He never believed that he was going to heaven. He believed that he would be raised from the dead right down here. And that's the reason he bought the cave of Machpelah and buried Sarah there. And he himself was buried there. Isaac had that same hope. And even old Jacob, who died down in the land of Egypt, said he wanted to be buried back up there where his fathers were buried. This was because they had a hope of the resurrection of the dead. They were seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11 verse 10 which will be a reality on, earth, on this earth someday. That's the Old Testament hope. that The Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, John 14 verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you, away from this earth. That was brand new, you see. God, God's promise to Abraham was to give him an eternal home on this earth. And Ruth said not only that when Naomi died she would die, but also, and there will I be buried. You see, her hope is in that land, just as the hope of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been. That's a comment from J. Vernon McGee. 
saying that her comment wasn't just a flippant comment, I want to be buried there, but recognizing that the hope of the Jews was if you were buried in that land, that there was this hope of the resurrection. This is quite remarkable. Because Ruth's faith, her willingness to go back to this land, to give up everything she'd known, to go with Naomi, to allow Naomi's God to be her God, was rooted in the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And isn't that really the only real basis for faith? That our hope is rooted in the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, which typically in a week or two's time we'll be kind of starting to celebrate as we move into the season the world refers to as Easter. But that is the basis. Paul makes this great case in 1 Corinthians 15. That the resurrection is the basis for our faith. So the two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass that when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this this Naomi? You can imagine as they walk back in, people turning to each other and kind of whispering. And no doubt Naomi realizes. And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty again empty why then call me Naomi seeing the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabites her daughter-in-law with her which returned out of the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest that brings us to the end of chapter 1 and now sets the scene as we move into chapter 2 and Naomi had a kinsman of her husbands, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. I just want to highlight this. We must not underestimate the magnitude of this verse. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. What an incredible statement. Naomi had a kinsman. You and I have a kinsman. All, of the, all the things we're going to see are simply based upon that fact. All the blessings, the whole idea of the land being redeemed, all are because of this one fact. We have a kinsman, somebody who is related to Adam. This is such a monumental verse in the scheme of things. Really, it's saying there is a way. See, if Naomi didn't have a kinsman, it's over. She'd have forfeited her land, everything's gone. There'd be no hope of redemption. But this verse starts with this wonderful truth that there is a way. And notice what we're told. Naomi had a kinsman of her husbands, okay, of the family of God is my king. You know, folks, this morning we have a kinsman who is of the family of God is my king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to do the will of his father. And we're told of this mighty man of wealth. You know, our kinsman also is a mighty man of wealth. The parallels here are just breathtaking when you look at it in the light of our own lives. And you only have to do a cursory study of the New Testament to see time and time and time again that Jesus is this mighty man of wealth. He's able to supply exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. According to his riches. And notice that his name is Boaz. Well, Boaz means strength. That's what the name means. So we have a kinsman of the family of God is my king. He's a man of wealth and his name is strength. What a wonderful picture of Jesus. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose side I shall find grace. She didn't know where she was going. She was saying, I'm just going to go somewhere. I'm just going to find a field. I'll start gleaning. And so Naomi says to her, go, my daughter. It's interesting because this is based upon the Levitical law, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. The law of gleaning. We looked at this as we were going through and highlighted these verses at the time in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19 to 22 as well. And so what we see already is that Ruth has an understanding of the law, of the law of Israel. Because she says to her mother-in-law, let me go and do something. I'm not just going to sit around. Your law says that if I go, I can glean in the field. So she knows what she can do and she goes and does it. 
So not only does she have faith, but works accompanying that faith. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. (laughs) And her hap was to light upon a part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just so happened. You know, there's a lot of just so happens in our lives, aren't there? This field belonging to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. I just just love that little verse there. And her hap was. You know, it's been said before that coincidence is when God chooses to work anonymously. Of course, there is no coincidence in our lives because we're told in Scripture, Psalm 37, 23, that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. God had just directed her path that morning and she happened to come to this particular field, which of all the fields in Bethlehem, Judah and the surrounding areas, happened to be the one owned by Boaz. Well, James 2 highlights that our faith should have works accompanying it. And of course, Boaz's mum had demonstrated her faith by her works. Do you remember Rahab? And of course, Ruth now does the same thing. And it seems to be interesting that seeing Ruth acting on her faith, no doubt, caused Boaz to think about his own mum, who was also a Gentile, who had also chosen to serve the God of Israel. No wonder Boaz took note of this young woman, because everything about her would have reminded him of his own mum and her faith and her leaving the world as it was and coming to serve the God of Israel. God, of course, has a corner in every field where he's made provision for you right now. So no matter how difficult things are, God has made provision. That's the God that we serve. He'll always provide everything that we need. He can provide exceedingly abundantly above everything we think or ask. He's a man of great mighty wealth, a man of strength. And through understanding God's word, Ruth knew what she must do, as we said a moment ago. And of course the same is true for us. We must understand God's word. We must read God's word. Verse 4 tells us, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. So wonderful blessing is Yahweh be with you, is what he's saying here. This is the covenant keeping God be with you. Wouldn't it be great to have a boss like that? Who puts God first. Who bases everything upon the covenant of our God. You know, actually, all of us have a boss like that. Because we've been bought at a price, which means we now belong to Jesus. So wherever we are... In our daily lives, in our work lives or whatever else, we're there on assignment because we belong to him now. Ultimately, Jesus is our boss. We serve him. And then Boaz said unto his servant that was set over the, uh, the, reaper, the reapers, Whose damsel is this? Who is this girl? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel. I think... In English, we have it translated just kind of, it is the Moabitess damsel. You know, just, but it's the, this is the one, that's the girl that everybody's been talking about. That came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. she became the talk of the town. Already they were talking as they came back in. I wonder, was this love at first sight? You know, no doubt Boaz had heard about this girl already. And again, those parallels with his own mum may well have been drawn. Now he looks upon this beautiful young girl. Was it love at first sight? Maybe. We don't know. But again, the girl. This is the one that they're talking about. It's interesting that Boaz sees Ruth before she knows who he is. Well, think about it for us. John 15, 16. We read there. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. You see, God looked at us. Jesus looked at us before we knew who he was. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reaper. So this is now the, the servant relaying this to Boaz. And he's saying, what she said was, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. She's been working all day. She just had a little break in the house, but all day she's been working. And then Boaz said unto Ruth, so now Boaz goes and makes the introduction. Hearest thou not my daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels and drink, 
of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto them, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? This is another one of those uh, absolutely jam-packed full verses, really. Why have I found grace in thine eyes? The why question, first of all, what is the reason that you've done this for me? Well, because it pleased him. For us, why has God done what he's done for us? What did he do, what he's done? Because it pleased him. Why have I? You know, you think of your own lives. Because you've become the object of my affection, says God to us. And that was the situation for, for Boaz. This young girl has become the object of his affection. Why have I found grace? Because I have in abundance what you need and it pleases me to give it to you. Well, that was true for Boaz. And of course, with Jesus, he has in abundance and it pleases him to give it to us. Not any part of this is because we deserve it. Why have I found grace in your eyes? See, Ruth acknowledges just who this man is, which makes the above even more overwhelming when you think about our position. Why have we found grace in his eyes, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, the creator of all things? So just like Ruth, we were strangers. And not only has God brought us into his field and protected and provided for us, he's poured his grace upon us and made us to be part of his family. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It has fully be shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the day of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and mother and the land of thy nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. <laughs> See, Boaz knows all about her. John 4.29, you remember the woman at the well? She goes and gets her friends and says, Come and see it. A man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? You know, when we come to Jesus, he already knows everything. The wonderful fact about that is that he can't be disappointed by finding out what we're really like. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and, you know, you may build a, a friendship, a relationship with that individual. You know, and you kind of think maybe they won't really find out what I'm really like or, you know. Sometimes we have an opinion of ourselves and sometimes it's a, a correct view. Other times, sometimes we look very negatively upon ourselves. But nothing we do will be a surprise to God. So sometimes it may indeed shock us at the way we behave. But nothing will be a surprise. God knows everything about us, even before we came to him. Just as Boaz knows all things here. See, God knows all things, bears all things because he's love. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the amazing thing is that love never fails. God doesn't give up on us because he sees us how we can be in Christ. So Boaz says, The Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou hast come to trust. And then she said, Let me find favour in thy sight, my Lord, for, thou, uh, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime, come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. You don't get it quite in the translation we have here, but what we're seeing here is a beautiful picture. Eating of the bread to start with. And then, although it's translated vinegar, what we're seeing is the fruit of the vine here. She's been invited to a banqueting table to eat bread and wine with her strength with the one who's going to redeem her. It's a wonderful picture. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her. And leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. It's a lovely, wonderful phrase. These handfuls of purpose. You know, there's handfuls of purpose all around us too. That just so happens. That God sees are left there for us. God loves us so much that he does this for us all the time. The little things, the coincidences, at the right time, the right place, those handfuls of purpose. That word that we need to be spoken to as a word of encouragement or whatever, at the right time, the right moment. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out that she had gleaned 
and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that, took, uh, that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed unto her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. <laughs> you just kind of almost imagine Naomi at this point, as just a tear come to her eyes. She suddenly realizes. She says, Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, Do you know who this man is? She says, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabite said, And he said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Which takes us to chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? This is something that mothers do, and mother-in-laws typically will do. It's, uh, let's see if we can get you married, shall we? That's what she's saying. You know, I want to seek rest for you. I want to find somewhere where you can settle down in marriage. And of course, Matthew Henry actually makes this comment. He says, a marriage state is or should be a state of rest. Wandering affections are then fixed and the heart must be at rest. That's exactly what Naomi has now purposed in her heart to do here. We're told, and now he's not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou was. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now typically that's a, a threshing floor um, as you would find them in Israel. And uh, you'd winnow out all the, 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 um, that which you'd gleaned from the field. But then also typically you'd sleep by it, you'd stay by it overnight to protect it from anybody that may came, uh, come and try and take it away. And so uh, Ruth is given this instruction, wash thyself therefore and anoint thee and put thy raiment upon thee and get down thee to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Good advice, girls. Let the man eat and drink first. Uh, let's kind of uh, get them in the right frame of mind. Interesting, though, isn't it, that we find here that basically wash thyself, therefore, anoint thee. You know, you've got to look good, girl, is what uh, Naomi is effectively saying. And it's true that people feel more confident when made up. And I'm not suggesting men we should use makeup, but we, we have this way of making ourselves want to look right. And it kind of just underlies something that goes all the way back to Genesis. We were intended to be clothed. It's a very simple fact with humanity. We meant to be clothed. Not just physical apparel, but we should have been clothed with the glory of God. When that glory departed in the Garden of Eden, when man and when Adam and Eve were then removed from that situation, there was that acknowledgement and need for covering. And even to this day, we all try and cover ourselves. Not just physical clothing, but in all sorts of other things as well, with makeup or whatever other things. Just that we feel protected. We like almost to hide behind a mask. Of course, ultimately, we'll be clothed again with the glory of God. And that's how it should be. And even for us as Christians now, you know, we shouldn't need to have all the adornments that the world looks to. It doesn't mean to say that we, we shouldn't have a pride in our appearance. There's nothing wrong with that, providing it's for the glory of God. But ultimately, even now, we should, we should have that clothing, that spiritual clothing. And it shall be, when he lies down, this is again, Naomi now giving this instruction, when he lies down, thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. It's almost kind of an apprehension I kind of detect there, whether that's me just reading into it, but kind of Ruth going, okay, if you think that's right, I'll go do it. Well, Ruth does exactly what she's told to do. Again, as I said, it would be normal to sleep at the threshing floor just to protect the crop from thieves and so on. And Naomi was confident that Boaz knows all about here the law of Leverite marriage. See, Boaz will know what to do, is what Naomi says. There's a part of the law that is about to come into play. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 is your reference for that particular scripture. And she went down onto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, thine handmaid. And then says this bizarre thing to our ears. He says, Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now, to you and I, that just may seem a very strange situation. Is she kind of propositioning him or what's going on? Well, there's nothing improper going on here. What she's saying is, I want to come under your authority. I want to become your wife. It's as simple as, as what she's saying. Throughout scripture, we find hems and skirts and things mentioned a number of times. And every time, they're used to symbolize authority. First Samuel 24. You remember when David takes the part of Saul's robe off? And then he feels very cut up about it. Why? Because he didn't just cut a bit of his garment. No, because it was an attack on his authority as king. The woman with the issue of blood, what does she do? Reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. Why? Because she's acknowledging his authority. And Ruth is basically asking Boaz here exactly that, to come under his authority. And you can see another reference in Ezekiel 16.8 to the same. He said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, insomuch as thou followed not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. So again, he understands the law and what's required. For all the city of my people does know that thou art a virtuous woman. What a great testimony for Ruth, recorded forever in God's word here. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. How be it? There's a but here. But there is a kinsman nearer than I. And the law demanded that the one that was closer would give, have the right of first refusal effectively, not just for, the, for Ruth, but for the land. And so Boaz says, Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto the part of a kinsman, then fine, let him do it. Let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of the kinsman to thee. As the Lord lives, lie down until the morning. And she laid his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. This is an important little point here. She, gets, she, she leaves before everybody's up and about. There's nothing improper had happened that night. But doesn't the word tell us that we shouldn't give any uh, occasion for any appearance of evil? You know, if people had seen us sneaking out early in the morning, they might have said, hello, what's going on there? You know, for us, we've got to be very careful how the world perceives the things that we do or don't do, the places that we go or don't go, the things that we find acceptable. We've got to remember that we're ambassadors all the time. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. So she holds this out and she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And we would read that and maybe skip over it. We're told, and she told her all that the man has done to her. What Naomi is saying is, uh, Well, what happened? Who are you? Do I call you Mrs. Boaz? That's what she's saying. Who art thou, my daughter? With that little twinkle in her eye. And she said, this is Ruth now, these six measures of barley gave he for to me and said, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. You see, these six measures of barley have been given specifically to give to Naomi. It was a message that Boaz wanted to convey. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he's finished the thing this day. You see, Naomi understood from this strange little message, these six measures of barley that he's specifically been told to give, Ruth has been told to give, that there was a message encoded in this. And Naomi cracks the code. Six is not complete. You see, God works in sevens. Always through scripture. Seven is complete. Naomi tells Ruth that she can now do nothing. That's it. It's over. There's nothing you can do. And she's asked Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer. Now it's all up to him. She's powerless, of course, just as we are. Once we've asked Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer, we too are powerless. It's all in his hands. There's nothing we can do. And so the concluding chapter. Then went Boaz up to the gates and sat him down. And there, behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke 
who came by and whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, come and sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and, and said, Sit you down here. And they sat down. Again, the gate of the city, we find a number of times in scripture, there's reference to the gate. It's, in ancient cultures, it was the, the city council, if you like. It's where decisions were made or things were debated, uh, the gate of the city. And that's why Jesus, speaking in Matthew sixteen eighteen, speaks of the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're not going to be attacked by gates. It's talking about the authority, the councils of hell will not prevail against the church. But he said unto the kings, When Naomi that is come out of the country of Moab sells a pass of land, which was our brother Elimelech's, and I thought to advertise, he's saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou redeem it, redeem it. But if thou will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I, I am after thee. And he said, I'll redeem it. So the situation there's this piece of land, it can't go outside the tribe, it's got to stay within the family unit, the tribe of Israel. And so Boaz says to this near kinsman, you know, it's there, it needs to be redeemed. If you don't redeem it, I will. And so this other chap says, no, it's all right, that's fine, I'll, I'm quite happy to pay the price, I'll, I'll have the piece of land, I don't mind. And Leviticus 25, 25 is the law, highlights the law regarding this. Barnes makes the comment, he says, According to the law, if any Israelite through poverty would sell his possession, the next of kin, or the goel, had a right to redeem it by paying the value of the number of years remaining until the jubilee, the 50th year. And this right, Boaz advertises the goel of, so as to give him an option which the law secured to him of redeeming our brother Elimelech's land, i.e. our kinsman, according to the common use of the term brother, for a near relation. And then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. In other words, if you have the land, fine. Or oh, by the way, <laughs> forgot to mention, um, there's this young girl. You'd have to take her to be wife. And then you have to raise up children in the name of her dead husband, according to the law. <laughs> and the chap goes, oh, hang on a minute, uh, uh, I can't do that, he says. The kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Because he was more concerned about his own inheritance, that which he had. He said, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Barnes again makes a comment, he says, observe the action of the Leverite law. If there had been no one interested but Naomi, she would have sold the land um, unclogged by any condition. But the law of Leverite having no, sorry, the law of Leverite, Leverite having no existence in her case. But there was a young widow upon whom the possession of the land would devolve at Naomi's death, and who already had the right of partnership in it. And the law of the Leverite did apply in her case. It was, therefore, the duty of the girl to marry her and raise up seed to his brother, i.e. his kinsman. And he could not exercise his right of redeeming the land unless he was willing at the same time to fulfill his obligations to the deceased by marrying the widow. And this he was unwilling to do. Matthew Henry says, This makes many shy of the great redemption. They are not willing to espouse religion. They have heard well of it. They have nothing to say against it. They will give their good word, but at the same time they will give their good word with it. They are willing to part with it. And cannot be bound to it, for fear of marring their own inheritance in this world. Heaven they could be glad of, but holiness they can dispense with. It will not agree with the lust they have already espoused. And therefore, let who will purchase heaven at any rate, but they cannot. Verse 7 we carry on. Now, this was the manner in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming, concerning uh, uh, changing, um, for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said to Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. So this individual fulfilling the law. The shoes here, this is interesting, because it's just as putting on shoes denotes preparation for a journey, so the taking off of shoes symbolically would speak of not being prepared to take a journey. That's why, although it seems a very strange idea in our culture, why would you just take your shoe off? And, you know, what does that mean? It means I'm not prepared to take this journey. As believers, we are to have our shoes on in readiness 
for the journey that lay before us. What, you know, we're told, aren't we, that we should have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. That readiness to take the journey. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Marlon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gates of his place. You are witnesses this day. All the people that were in the gates and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Well, this was in essence a prophecy because this is exactly what happens. You see, Matthew 13 reminded there, Again, the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man has found, he hides. For the joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. See, Jesus brought the field in order to get the bride. Satan, of course, evidently doesn't seem to get this. He tried to tempt Jesus by offering them the world. But Jesus didn't come to gain the world. He came to gain the bride. He purchased the field in order to get the bride. And Jesus said, what is it a profit a man if, she gain, if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what, should he sell, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Joe Foch makes a comment. What Jesus is saying is that one human soul is more valuable than the entire cosmos and created universe. I love that quote. And so they continue, they conclude their blessing pronouncing on Boaz here. And say, and let thy house be like the house of Pharez. Whom Tamar bore unto Judah of the seed which the Lord should give thee of this young woman. Now that's not so much a blessing if you understand the context. Pharaoh's was the illegitimate child that we read about in Genesis chapter 38. The offspring of Tamar and Judah. You need to go back and study Genesis 38 to see the details of this. But Pharaoh's is this, this illegitimate child. The Lord that had said that no illegitimate child shall enter into the congregation of the Lord until the tenth generation. It doesn't sound like much of a blessing. That law, Deuteronomy 23 verse 2, makes that clear. When we look, though, from Perez and we count down ten generations, we get to the tenth generation and we get to David, the one who God knew would be the one who would be the rightful king for Israel. So that even within this, there's this wonderful prophecy. It's interesting through scripture we find, and I'm not sure what you do with this information, but every time we find that the tenth man is a man of significance. And you can look at those lists going down. It'll be in the, the slides and the notes available for you. Um, just again, just, just we see this design through scripture. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto the, her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which has not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loves thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, has borne him. And Naomi took the child, and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the woman, her neighbours, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed, by the way, means worship. Now these are the generations of Pharaoh. So now we're given this, this link all the way through. And again, Samuel, believed to have been the author of this, doing this on purpose to show this link now down to David. Pharaoh, we get Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and then David to conclude. Now, just before we wrap things up, I just want to highlight just a couple of the shadows and types that we see. Firstly, just want to read a summary of the book that we've just gone through. When Elimelech married Naomi, they brought forth Marlon and Chilion and were forced to leave Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech died and Naomi became Mara. Later, both Ruth and Orpha, who were Gentiles, had the chance to return to the God of Israel. But Orpha turned back and sought false gods. But Ruth returned to the God of Israel. Ruth found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, who then purchased her, and she was joined to Boaz. What the near kinsman could not do, her Boaz did. Ruth married Boaz and brought forth Obed. 
Just a lovely little summary, very simple summary of the book. Now, we mentioned at the beginning that there's all these names, but every one of these names, as we go through the book, has meaning. We've already mentioned Elimelech, Naomi, Bethlehem, Judah. Mara means bitterness, we mentioned the two boys. Ruth means beauty. Orpha, interestingly, means double-minded. Boaz means strength, and the near kinsman, or symbolically, is a type of the law. And Obed, we said, means worship. So let me read you exactly the same sentence. And all I'm going to do now is just put the meaning of the name instead of the name. And this is incredible. When God is my king, marry pleasure, think back to the Garden of Eden. They brought forth sickness and pining and were forced to leave the house of bread and praise. God is my king, died. And pleasure became bitterness. Later, both beauty and double-minded Gentiles had the chance to return to the God of Israel. The double-minded turned back and sought false gods. Beauty returned to the God of Israel. Beauty found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer, who then purchased her and she was joined to strength. What the law could not do, her strength did. Beauty married her strength and brought forth worship. What an amazing book the Bible is. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer. The prerequisites were he must be a kinsman, a family member. He must be able to perform and must be willing to perform. He must assume all the obligations. Boaz was the lord of the harvest and the kinsman redeemer. This incredible type of Jesus Christ. Naomi, a type of Israel. And Ruth, a Gentile bride. Look at this in regard to the nation of Israel. So Naomi as a type of Israel, as a very quick summary, abandoned the God of Israel. They left the land. Driven to the Gentiles and suffered great loss, but regathered in unbelief. Reintroduced to the kinsman redeemer. The land and the blessings were restored. Who was it, by the way, that was responsible ultimately for, re- for introducing her to the kinsman redeemer or Ruth looking at it in regard to the church well the Gentiles were married to the sickness we were outside the covenants and the promises of God we were, co- we were, we were strangers we were aliens and so on as we read in Ephesians but we are converted to the God of Israel through Jewish witness the word of God by the way is Jewish in essence We happened upon the field of the kinsman. Introduced to the kinsman by an unnamed servant. Did you notice that as we were going through? Boaz arrives and he says, who is this girl? It was an unnamed servant, not told who he was. A type of the Holy Spirit. The kinsman then leaves these handfuls of purpose. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. She, Ruth, the church, Recognizes her poverty before him. <laughs> that question is asked, why have I found grace in your sight? She's to wash and cleanse herself before meeting her kinsman, just as we are to do by the washing of water by the word. She finds him at the threshing floor. And she seeks to be under his authority. And then she simply rests, knowing that he will complete everything. Which is another wonderful picture. The kinsman redeemer... Obviously, speaking of Jesus, well, he knew all about her, Boaz with Ruth, Jesus with the church. He gave up his reputation. He overcame the obstacle. He gave himself for his bride. And he buys the field to get his bride. And he purchases the bride publicly, as Jesus did on the cross for us. And he provides out of his abundance. Just incredible, breathtaking design. In order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. Again, what the law could not do, grace did. Ruth doesn't replace Naomi. (laughs) To make that very clear, church doesn't replace Israel. But Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. And don't we learn of Jesus through the Jewish witness, the testimony? Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, 
He had to wait for her move. See, God will not force any one of us into a relationship with him and with his son. It's our choice. But Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the near kinsman, a type of the law. Jesus overcame the law. In fact, Jesus became a curse for us to free us from the curse of the law. Interestingly, the book of Ruth is always read at the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot, the Jewish festival. They don't fully understand the typology. They don't see it. They're looking with these eyes that have been blinded. And again, as we said earlier, you can't really understand Revelation chapter 5 without understanding the book of Ruth. When we get there, we'll see, we'll draw, tie all these wonderful threads together. The bottom line is that you and I are beneficiaries of a love story that was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea almost 2,000 years ago. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so overwhelming as we see this incredible design. But Lord, what we're reminded of is your incredible love for us, that you gave up everything to purchase us, to provide for us, to protect us. Also, Lord, we want to abandon every vestige of the old life, give up those old gods. Lord, we want you to be our God. Jesus, we just thank you for this time, for your word. Just keep us growing in knowledge and grace, we ask, in the precious name of our kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.